Welcome to Tales from the Waystone, a King Killer Chronicle reread podcast. We are your hosts, Will and Phoenix. Let's get into it. Welcome to Tales from the Waystone Season 2, where we're taking a brief break from the wise man's fear to discuss Patrick Rothfuss's newest release, The Narrow Road Between Desires. This expanded reimagining of the Bass-centric short story, The Lightning Tree, came out just this past week as of this recording, so we're taking this episode to compare it to the original volume. This week, we're tackling the first third of the book, which covers dawn through midday. Hope you enjoy. Interruption by Sokka. Is it 11? Uh, 10.42. He can wait. All right. <laughs> so, first of all, we are not going to blow by blow the story again. We just went through the lightning tree. And as Pat notes in his foreword, if you've read the lightning tree, you know the shape of this story. We're more interested in the things that have changed. And we also highly encourage you to go buy the book. And not only that, but to take in the changes if you have read the lightning tree and savor them and enjoy them. And if we've missed any, let us know. But if you haven't read The Lightning Tree and you want the actual full story and not just our truncated redescription of it and our commentary and everything, you should really just read the book. The audiobook, at least in the US, is read by Nick Podell, which is great because he's the reader in the US for The Name of the Wind and The Wise Man's Fear. Pat read The Slow Regard of Silent Things, which I think was the best choice because it has such a tumbling cadence that Pat, I think, is the only one that can do it justice because, oh my goodness, I can't read that thing in the actual text form. But I love listening to his pattering in the audiobook. But so, as per usual, I'm listening to the audiobook. Will is reading the actual story. And another thing, though, that you do lose in the audiobook is Nate Taylor's amazing illustrations. Again, before you get into this, I am letting you know that we are going to talk about the first third of this little novella that you should just go and buy anyway, or at least get from a library. Or borrow from a friend. I'm saying, please promote the actual author and the illustrator and the audiobook reader. Please give them your patronage. Don't just rely on us to give you the shape of the story. I'm just going to say right now, the illustrations alone are worth the price of admission. I was going to say that I'm like, even if you're one of the people that is almost hate listening, because some people do that and I don't understand. But if you're one of the people that went on to Goodreads and just decided that before it came out, you were going to give it a zero star or whatever you could, because that did happen. And you're only listening to this to kind of tell yourself you're deriding it. Stop kicking people in the slushy. Just stop it. Stop stop being like that. That's unbecoming and ugh. But again, if you support Pat and you love his work and you love good stories in general and you want to support a wonderful illustrator, a wonderful author, I would say just go out and acquire the book in some way that you can read it. All of that said, I understand if you turn this off right now, and I encourage you to, if you would rather just read the book. It's a quick read. It's 
fun, it's lighthearted. And frankly, there's a place for that. Not everything has to be a massive doorstop sized tome. I realize that may be heresy for many in modern fantasy, but I know I'm just I'm staring at the Priory of the Orange Tree. <laughs> and that is a book that if I tried to read it in bed would consistently break my nose because it would fall on my face as I fell asleep. Not because it's boring, but because I chose to read it in bed. And it's a big book. It is a heavy, big book. Anyway, let's go ahead and give our little brief explanation of the pod and our disclaimers and all that other stuff. I apologize. The cat thinks that he's starving to death. He has thoughts. He has commentary. You never asked me what I thought of Bass symbolism. <laughs> you never asked me what I thought about the release date. Anyway, this is going to be a little bit different than our normal format, as we are going to be doing a short comparison between the lightning tree and the narrow road between desires. We will, at the end, wrap things up with seven words from the book and seven words from our own lives. Before we begin, let's get some disclaimers out of the way. First of all, we are in no way affiliated with Patrick Rothfuss or Nate Taylor or their publisher, Daw Books. Also, I think I made this clear, but I'm going to make it as clear as possible. We are spoiling this brand new reimagining of an older story. We are spoiling it. You can't get mad. We told you. If you don't want to be spoiled, would you please just stop listening? You're still here? Cool. Finish the book. No, that's on you. Yes? Please come to our Discord and talk to us about it. Anyway, also a word to our community. Please be kind to yourselves, one another, and the creators of the worlds that we love exploring. And if it strikes your fancy, go on Goodreads and actually give it the rating that you would actually like to have it have and not a zero or a one or a stupidly low thing because the author has a life and also doesn't write as fast as some quote fans would like him to review bombing is for ash holes all right so with that out of the way let's kick things off just by talking briefly about the author's forward in this one it's pat being his usual self-deprecating self it's very similar to the opening to the slower guard of silent things. Pat is actively discouraging people from reading his work. The thing that I keep getting from this book and all of his work really is that all of these books that he's written, whether it's Name of the Wind, The Wise Man's Fear, Princess and Mr. Wiffle, Slower Guard of Silent Things, all of these are intensely personal works. And I think, frankly, he's a little surprised that they've been as popular as they have been. I think that they're for him. Exactly. And just because you like it doesn't mean it's for you. It's for him. And I also think he is not concerned with making something that everyone will get. Or everyone will like. He is following the Mystery Science Theater story where Joel Hodgson was asked, well, I don't think everyone's going to get it. And then he said, the right people will get it. And, you know, again, that's a very upper Midwest sort of thing to say, Minnesota and all that. 
Pat's from Wisconsin. So I think there's a, a little bit of cross-pollination there. This is very much Pat saying, not everyone is going to like this or get this, but the right people will, and this is for them. He's also letting you know very much that this is a reimagining of a lightning tree. This is a reimagining of a story he's already published. He doesn't pretend it's not. And he says quite clearly, if you've read The Lightning Tree, you know the shape of the story. I didn't feel at all bad about spoiling the entire plot of The Lightning Tree because it's years old. There are ways to access it. And if you're outside of the US, I don't know if it's completely region locked, but it's a story that you could probably find the bones of in some shape somehow. So I didn't feel bad about that. So I don't feel bad about kind of going over some of the detail changes in The Narrow Road so far. And we've read about half of it because we just got it. Like Will read half of it overnight. <laughs> so far, the plot hasn't changed, but a couple of details have and a couple of things have been expanded upon. There's also a few new additions to the lore that I think are pretty fascinating. But we aren't spoiling a plot so much as we're just revisiting what we did for the last four episodes. So I think that the author's note is worth reading in this. I think Pat's blog posts are worth reading because he talked about some of the rejected author's notes. But he does the exact same, you might not want to read this in The Slow Regard of Silent Things as well. I think that that's more warranted in The Slow Regard of Silent Things because, again, it's a difficult read. Lightning Tree, or Narrow Road Between Desires. Not difficult at all, but has a completely different tone than The Wise Man's Fear or The Name of the Wind. Yeah, I mean, here's actually the best way that I can describe it. It kind of has the feel of an 80s kid adventure where you have kids who were out playing all day doing God knows what from dawn till dusk because their parents told them, get out of the house, go do something, literally anything. And it has that feel to it. Bast very much is that sort of character. He's off getting into trouble, doing all sorts of things that maybe he shouldn't do. And also this is kind of Bast growing up. A little bit. I would say he's like, Late adolescence to early 20s, sort of, with the caveat that he is also probably hundreds of years old. So there's one interaction in here with Costrel that I think will really shed where I mean where this is Bast reflecting on growing up and what it means to grow up. Um, and that has less to do with your actual age and more just to do with how you interact with the world. I agree with you. I don't think that growing up needs to be absence of fun. And I don't think that Bass thinks that either. No, not at all. And being an adult is something that I think a lot of us are still figuring out. It's a work in progress for pretty much everybody. But with that, let's go ahead and jump in with the first section here. Each one of these little chapters is built around a time of the day. And there's an illustration at the beginning of each chapter or section or what have you that has a little bit to do with what is found in that section. So we start off with Dawn Artistry. So this is just a brief little introduction to the world. 
Bast is starting his day, trying to sneak out of the Waystone. And I think we need to focus more on what's different between this and the Lightning Tree. It starts off similar, but there's like more. I think the interaction between Kvoth and Bast feels a little more loaded. It feels more complete. There are just certain little choices of words, like his mouth was in the shape of a smile, which has this sense that there is something there that isn't actually a smile, it's just shaped like it. Kind of feels like there's a lot of, I know that you know that I know that you know that I know that you know that I know, etc. <laughs> like there's this back and forth between Bast and Kvoth where the two of them are always trying to one-up one another a little bit. The things that I noticed in addition to that are there's more of a setup for the plot. There's more detail given to Reich showing up and wanting to see Bast. There's more menace, actually, around Reich's presence. And also there's reference to who his father is, because patriarchal society is focused more on the dude's role. I think it's also meant to show us some of the context of the world because Jessam is a principal character in this story and his relationship to Reich is what drives a lot of things. And so by making that connection early on, I think it's meant to just make everything a little more obvious. But I also think that it adds a certain tone or flavor to the town because it is based so highly on the man's role as the leader of the family. And then there was another line on here that I thought was really interesting. I just want to share it. Sometimes it was worth a little work so that you seem to be the thing you truly were. Sometimes it's not enough to simply be open and honest and trustworthy, but also to make clear that you are. I think also sometimes the appearance of being those things, even when you aren't, makes you an easier person to interact with. Yeah, I think that about covers the important things in this little section. So let's go ahead and move on to Morning Embril. A few things stood out to me. First of all, the character of Bran or Braun or however you want to pronounce it. We'll go back and forth on this. We've already been back and forth over this multiple times. Well, Bran is now the baker's daughter. Instead of the baker's son, which was the case in the lightning tree. And then we also get introduced to the concept of embrels. These are wholly new to the lore and to this story. And they're sort of a cross between runestones and tarot cards. This particular one was given to Bran by Reich, again, lurking in the background throughout this story. All we know so far is that he has crossed Bast in the past and Bast holds a grudge against him. I do have a question for you. Mm. There are a few gender swaps from the original story. Does it matter? Yes and no, right? Like, so it matters in the sense that it makes the story more inclusive. Yes. It makes it easier for various people to see themselves in this world. And absolutely, that matters. Also, I'm going to say this representation matters not just so that someone can see themselves 
in a story, but so that they can see someone who is different from them and empathize with that person. Absolutely. So yes, it does matter. I don't think it negatively impacts the story, which is, I think, the thing that people are always worried about with these sorts of things. It does change things. It does matter. But I don't think it changes anything for the worst. I'm going to say this. If I didn't have a comparison, I don't think it would be a noteworthy thing. Exactly. And I think that changing the gender of a minor character whose interactions and characterization and whatever had nothing to do with their gender, I don't think that that's a huge deal as in it doesn't affect the story, but it does affect the perception of the story and makes the world a little more well-rounded if not every character is a little boy or not every character is straight. I think it makes it more realistic and also there are a couple of interactions that are in here that show a little bit of Pat's growth over the, I don't remember how long it's been since the first book was published, blah, 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 don't care. Where the only representation of homosexuality in, I believe it was The Name of the Wind, was almost predatory. Yeah, there was a little bit of gay panic involved when Quoth runs into a couple at the Aeolian. It was a little weird. It was unpleasant. Yeah. As a queer person, that was unpleasant. I think that the casualness with which the change of, for instance, Greta to Gret, and Gret seems to be a agender or non-binary person that doesn't have gendered pronouns, I think that that's a good thing because it shows in a story that you can have a young man have a crush on someone who you know quite frankly is like me you know and it's not weird and it's not wrong i think that those are good little things and it's the tiniest little mentions it's normalized it's a blink and you'll miss it and if that's the one takeaway that a homophobic asshole takes from this book is that oh my god we changed a little girl to being a little boy and it's not natural blah 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 I just, you missed the point. I've also got to say, a lot of this is stuff that I don't know that I would necessarily hit on if I hadn't just read The Lightning Tree. Right. <laughs> like, it's there, and it's noteworthy, but it's also sort of the little minor shading around the color of the town. But going back to the thing that you were talking about with the emerald, I think that that's actually more entertaining and more interesting to me than necessarily focusing on minor pronoun changes. Yes, let's get the description of this particular embril. So this one is a green stone that's flat, irregular shaped, and carved with the face of a sleeping woman on one side, and then the same woman awake on the other. So like I say, these are a whole bunch of different sort of stones that Bast will pull out of a sack as an augury of sorts to see what is supposed to come next. I also have <laughs> have a sense that Bast kind of fudges the numbers a little bit when he gets something he doesn't like. I think that that's a thing that happens with tarot and or 
other oracle type objects. In a lot of cases, things are so vague as to be whatever you actually want them to say is what they said. Yeah, like I think there is a lot of stuff that is ambiguously supernatural and some of it that is outright not. And I think this is kind of one of those. Now we get another mention of Reich. Where did Bran get this little emerald? Reich gave it to her. All of this is putting a sour taste in Bast's mouth. Again, Reich is looming in the background. Then we get Kale Allard. We get a little bit of extra local flavor here as well. The Allards are basically one of those families where there's one kid in every grade, it feels like. <laughs> and one where the gene pool is wide, but not necessarily very deep. Also, just a group of mixed marriages. Yeah, it's not so much a family tree as a family briar patch. Yeah, I think that that was made a little more clear. Again, the interaction has pronouns that are different. Cool. And there's some light background about Kale to kind of flesh him out as a character. He is just as petty as you would expect. He once tried to trade Bast a pair of frog's legs for a curse that would make someone fart forever. And okay, I'm gonna... This is actually kind of funny and I don't know if it was intentional. There is like a weird meme thing, I don't know, about non-binary people always having a frog in their pocket. I, I don't know. I, I, I don't. I don't particularly care for having a frog in my pocket, but it would be funny. <laughs> I don't get this because every non-binary person I've ever met has not had a frog in their pocket. I mean, kind of explicitly. <laughs> like, But this kid has a crush on a non-binary person. And yeah, honestly, in the audiobook, they said M as a pronoun, like for them, just it's EM, it's apostrophe EM, so that we don't know if Gret's a boy, a girl, neither, both, you know, and I think that that's great. I think that this interaction is tiny, and I think that it's normal in this town. Nobody raises an eyebrow. Cool. So let's talk a little bit about the first pull that Bass gets from his emerald sack. Because I think this is kind of interesting. After having this interaction with Kale, Bast places the emerald that he got from Bran with the rest of his collection and then takes a pull from the sack to get a fortune read. So let's talk about that first one. Sorry for interrupting you. I do want to actually say that I found a few other little things that help the plot along that I think are cool because, you know, our criticism at the end of The Lightning Tree was that everything conveniently stacked up in the last bit of the story. So Bast deals in trade and secrets and favors. And this little mention of, I found a wild beehive. It's a throwaway line at the beginning, but it gives more context to what happens at the end. I think there's a lot of those little peppered in things that make the story feel more whole. And I can see them as someone who's read The Lightning Tree like a week ago that, you know, okay, that seems like it was kind of shoehorned in there. And I'm curious if any of you didn't read The Lightning Tree and didn't listen to our commentary or didn't have a text in your head that could affect how you read this book. I'm very curious to know how people receive it without the direct knowledge of The Lightning Tree. 
Sorry for interrupting you. Please continue on with Bast Fortune read. So yeah, let's actually talk a little bit about the fortune telling with the Embrels. So Bass takes the green stone that he got from Bran, and then he puts it in a leather sack with the rest of his Embrels. And then he takes a pull, and he's going to do this throughout the day. And I think it's kind of interesting to see how that influences his actions that come up next. So from this first one, we get a piece of pale horn carved with a crescent moon a clay disc with a stylized wave, a piece of tile painted with a dancing piper, and something that looked like half an iron coin but wasn't. And then finally he takes out a flat piece of white wood with a spindle carved so the grain of the wood gave the impression of wound thread. So some interesting objects there. The one that connects most clearly to me with his next action is the dancing piper, because then we get the scene with Bast and the sheep herder. In this case, it's a shepherd, not a shepherdess. Okay, I know that we went through all of this in context of, does it matter that there is a different gender associated or different pronouns or whatever? I'm going to say this as a queer person. It is nice to have text and not subtext, text that says this person is bi or pan, not sure, or omni, likes multiple genders. So... I'm just going to come out here and say that Bast, who is basically a satyr or a fawn, like Pan, and plays a pair of Pan pipes, is probably pansexual. And no, I am not sorry for this pun. It was intentional. It was intended. I think it was intended. The other thing about it is that if you think about the character, he should be Pan. He's Fae. He should be Pan. And I like that we don't have to imagine that that's true anymore. And I actually think, to me, this feels less ooky. Yeah, and I actually had something that I noticed on here that makes it so that the shepherd actually has some interaction with Bast and isn't just sort of the passive object of his ogling. Bast isn't just being a voyeur at this point. The shepherd is a participant, and this is a cute interaction. And I think it would still be cute if the shepherd was still a shepherdess because there's subtle differences in how it's written and how it comes across that make the object of Bast's desires have agency. So when Bast ends up stumbling and falling and ripping his pants, in the next little chapter here, we find out that Bast's pants have been patched with a little sheep and a shepherd's crook, which to me says the shepherd probably helped him with this. Like, I kind of feel like that's adorable. I think it's cute and flirty and more like a pinup that's supposed to be cute and flirty and not lecherous. Yeah, like I kind of get the sense that there's an actual interaction between the two. And it's consensual. Yeah, and I thought that was a fun little thing. So. Let's go ahead and move on to the narrow road, mid-morning. Let's start with our new emerald pole, which starts with a broken coin, which Bass doesn't like. So he goes for a mulligan and ends up getting a tile painted with a sleeping fox, which means it's time for him to take a nap. Okay, I hate doing this, but I'm going to do this again anyway. We're going to go and read the actual text of the last little bit of the last section with the shepherd. 
It's difficult to grin while playing shepherd's pipes, but Bast was something of an artist. Um, euphemism? <laughs> I think it's cute. Just going to say that. Anyway, let's go back to the other bits. <laughs> so after the nap, we meet Costrel, whose role has been expanded a bit here. The shape of the interaction is about the same, but I think we get more characterization about who Costrel is. He's playful. He's fun. He's Bast's favorite. He's more curious. He's also got a pretty good vocabulary. And I think it allows us as readers to see why he's Bast's favorite and also expand on the lore of the Fae of the world and to make his interaction feel more meaningful. I also have to say that this interaction has been made less ooky. Mind you, Bass is talking with children, right? Like prepubescent kids. He's 10. He's 10. So anything that he knows about sexuality, sex, the idea that he should want to look at a girl naked, the discussion of how pretty they are, all of that, I think it's still a little bit, I'm gonna say like, in a way that feels at least a little realistic, a little sexist. But I think it's more playful and I think it's more accurate and I think it's more age appropriate. And when Costrel is dickering around trying to figure out like what he can extract from Bast in return for the information about where Emberly takes her bath, he's like, I want you to describe her breasts to me. And Bast looks at this little child and just goes, get consent first. Yeah, and it, he makes clear that Bast is not the one who will ask. It will be, look, if Costrel would like to get a description of Emberly's breasts, he's going to have to ask Emberly himself. Bast won't do it for him. No. Bast's interactions seem consensual, even as they're flirty and have an air of voyeurism or have an air of almost... I don't want to say non-consent. I want to say... There's a little bit of transgressiveness to them. Like, there's a hint of danger without actually being dangerous. Right. Everything is consensual and respectful, but they're playing at things being stolen glances, stolen watching of, like, voyeurism. They're playing at these interactions... And I want to make sure that I am not kink shaming or shaming people for liking these flirty kind of coy, there we go, interactions. I think that this has been rewritten to make sure that we keep those coy interactions, those kind of, you're not supposed to want to look at another person while they're bathing, except if they want you to look at them while they're bathing, it's okay. I think that those still exist, right? Like, I think that that's great and has been kept, but it feels less gross. Yeah, I think part of it is also just over time, we've had more conversation about this sort of thing within the wider culture. It's not like the old 80s sex comedies like Porky's or, you know, anything like that, where you'd have a whole bunch of guys trying to get a peep of girls naked. I mean, we don't even have to go back to the 80s for that. I mean, American Pie. Yeah. 
We don't have to go back that far either. No. I just don't watch those. The other thing that we get is this rhyming bit about the Fae that Bass does, and I'd like to read it because in the rhyming couplets, I think it's kind of beautiful. And then we'll also talk a little bit of expansion on Glamoury and Grammoury, specifically as it relates to Kvothe. So the rhyme here first. First, I promised that I would be true. And to be clear, that's what I mean to do. So before I answer, I must say, there are uncounted varieties of fey. Many houses, many courts, all colored in their subtle shades, all burning with their own strange fires, all ruled according to their own heart's desires. Some have a tender love for nature's wild. Some are drawn to mortal hearth and home. Some find a secret place and stay, while others cannot help but roam. I thought that was kind of an interesting little rhyme there. I think we also really need to talk about the gift. And this is really, I think, one of the big changes from the original story is when Kostrel gives this gift to Bast, it isn't just a simple, okay, here's a gift, cool, whatever. It represents a meaningful bond. The specific gift that was given was a penance piece. Side note, if you want things like merchandise that include things like emeralds and penance pieces, World Builder's Shop has cool things that go along with the story. Yeah, so you can kind of see the tactile elements of these. Now, initially, Bast is worried that this means that he's now bound to Kostrel. Which could be dangerous because Kostrel is clever. Kostrel is just clever enough to get himself into trouble and not clever enough to get himself out of it necessarily. Kind of reminds me of the description that was given for the intent to teaching the designers how to code. We were taught well enough to get ourselves into trouble and screw everything in the game up and not well enough to be engineers. <laughs> we were taught well enough to go and give it to an engineer and say, please fix. Point being though, it, it's a bad thing for Bast here. Like, Kostrel is also just smart enough to start asking all sorts of questions that could force Bast to reveal things that are not his to reveal. About his master, about his origin. He's seen things go bad where you go from having fun and kisses one day and then it's torches and pitchforks. So he's nervous here. And then he finds out that this obligation now is not to Kostrel, but to the person who gave it to Kostrel. Da, 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 da. Reich. So now this means that Reich isn't just someone who is looming in the background. Now he's someone who has a hold on Bast. Again, that sort of adds to this air of menace. I do want to point out something. We are going to go through this in sort of order and sort of not. We are also going to talk about this as though you've read it. Right, so read it first. <laughs> if you don't want to be completely confused. One of the things here that I took from it was when asked about Grammarie, Bast gets really nervous because something about it is connected to Kvothe. And I can't help but wonder if there is this element of grammary that is behind his transformation into coat. Like that taking something and 
transforming it to be more of what it is or something like that just enhancing an element that's already there like his love of being an innkeeper right innkeepers are always kind and welcoming and hospitable every one of quoth's interactions with an innkeeper has been pretty much positive and so he's got a positive association so he's basically taken that part of himself and just amplified it to the point where it's all that's there and the hero of legend kind of fades into the background and it's that element of grammary that has bast spooked here not only that but we do have all of this being said and we know that he has to magic everyone in the town to believe that he has human legs that is the glamoury part of it yeah also again the illustrations of costrel are delightful they are great again really makes this worth the price of admission you can tell that pat and nate had a really good time coming up with these together and the way they are placed on the page helps tell part of the story adds a visual weight to it and the illustrations by themselves are worth the price of the book so then we move to midday birds I actually think that this is a cute section and I think what it does is it shows that Bast gives as much as he gets in terms of these flirtatious interactions. He enjoys putting on a show and he enjoys having a show put on for him. Like there's a reason why he feels like he has an appointment to take a bath. He knows that birds, quote, are going to be there at a certain time. He has let it be known that <laughs> that this is when he takes his bath. And of course, the illustration here is pretty much as pictured a complete shampoo commercial. It really, really is. Like, Bast is portrayed as pretty much the hottest guy possible. We're talking like Fabio on a romance novel cover. And he's got his shirt that he's washing out and then just like twisting up to make it fall water on his face and we know about the honeysuckle bar of soap and we know about the if a careful observer saw that his legs looked a little weird under the water well we all know that light bends weirdly in water you know and then we've got a picture of um said little birds and they're all having a good time by the looks of it watching him bathe oh my <laughs> i think it's an interesting juxtaposition to have that right before the section where he realizes that he has lost the book, which has now been pronounced at least three different ways in three different audiobooks. So I'm not going to try. He's lost his book that Kvothe has given him. It's a textbook. And when he does find it, we still get the... I need to talk to you. But I think that this has done a better job of making Reich loom in the background than the lightning tree did. Yeah. And I think also by giving Bast this sort of supernatural compulsion to help him out, it also helps to explain why Bast is even entertaining this. Why he gives in. Right. It also, I think, plays a bit more with Bast's nature as one of the Fae. Because mm -hmm. it's not all just 
goat legs and being hot. <laughs> Although. It is that, but it's also these supernatural compulsions and bonds and things that actually drive his behavior. There are rules. Yeah. This uh, is the Fae. There are rules. They may not make sense, but they're there and they're real. And, you know, like in traditional fairy lore, that's also a pretty big part of it. Like these are these wild, chaotic creatures that are also paradoxically bound by these ironclad rules that they cannot break. It's not even something that they just don't break. It's they are physically incapable of breaking. So I think it is a fun little expansion on that. And it, again, makes Bast a little more alien. And it kind of underscores that, yeah, he looks human, but there's more to him than just that look. There's also a little more menace to Bast. Yeah, I mean, like the section with Kostrel, he openly contemplates, well, crap, now I've got to kill this kid. Well, he did that before. But he spends more time on it. Yes, I agree. He spends more time on it and he's more conflicted. He doesn't come to an easy decision not to just outright murder the 10-year-old. And I think actually the section with Kostrel is really what had me thinking about that process of growing up. Bass talks about how being in this world is complicated. For a long time, he was able to basically just whatever he wanted, he took or tried to take, which is kind of a child's way of thinking. You know, I want something, so I go and I get it, or I try to get it or try to take it. And it never really is something that a child thinks about of, should I want this? Or is this even okay for me to try and get? My first Lego treasure chest wasn't my Lego treasure chest. It was a kid that was the son of a friend of my parent that I saw this thing and I'm like, I don't have any treasure chests. I want a treasure chest. And I just kind of yoinked the treasure chest and took it home with me. Right. Kids don't necessarily think about their desires in any sort of context other than themselves. And they don't think about how those desires interact with one another or how they might conflict. And I think maybe that's part of why Bast works almost exclusively with kids for this stuff, because he misses that sort of childlike, I see something and I grab it and I take it. Instead, he is forced to contend with conflicting desires, conflicting obligations. Keeping his master's secret, keeping his own secret, keeping the town safe. Yeah, like all of these are things that exist in tension. And the business of growing up, the process of growing up is learning to balance that tension and finding that narrow road between desires. Now, here's the question. I know we haven't gotten through the entirety of it, but just from the first third, do you like it better? Yeah, I do. Like I say, I feel like Noir feels a little more fleshed out. Most of what we've gotten here hasn't been radical departures from the original text so much as expansion that makes it feel a little more lived in. It makes it feel more like this is a real place and not just a generic setting. So it's a little more. Yeah, there's some grammary that's happened here. And I think that, yeah, it's a worthwhile read. I think so far I have 
really enjoyed it and it's expanded on my appreciation for the original books as well just because it helps to make sense of this world that Quoth and Bast live in you know before Chronicler comes and turns over the apple cart so to speak or whatever's following Chronicler yeah or coming after so yeah I think it also helps to get an understanding of this town and how it works how people live in it and what day-to-day life is like for these people again not just for our hero characters but just everyday folk there was actually a reference to Bast working for and I don't know if it happened like during this little section or if this happened a little bit later because I'm about halfway through but there's a reference of I think it was Costrel yelling at Bast or it was Reich but I'm pretty sure it was Costrel saying like, why should I listen to the person who works for the second best tap room in a town with one in? Right. I mean, that's that's a pretty good burn. Yeah, I thought that was great. Like, (laughs) the second best tap room in a town with one in. You're wondering then who's the first best, and my guess is actually it's probably Martin. I don't think that Martin has a tap room. Yeah, probably not, but I suspect that that's the reference. I don't think so. I think there must be, like, a bar somewhere. Either that, or they're just determined to throw a little bit of shade at Kvothe and Bast. Oh, absolutely. I do think that that is highly motivating, is just to get under Bast's skin. Yeah, I think so far it's been a worthwhile read. It's quick. I'd say that if you are going to read one of them, I would probably read The Narrow Road Between Desires. I would pick up Rogues because it is an anthology that has a lot of stories from a lot of great authors. Yeah. But if you're just wanting this story, go for the new one. It's definitely worth it. And we aren't being paid to say that. I'm just being honest. If we were being paid to say that, I would actually be able to tell people I have a real job. (laughs) That's unkind. You do have a real job. It's this podcast. It is, but I don't get paid for it. So with that, let's go ahead and move into our seven words. So I had the words from the books. Now, I had a little bit of a cheat sheet here, which is the stuff that we'd already caught in the first part of the lightning tree. That's true, but did you find anything new? Not this time, but there were a few changes. So for instance, he knew I was sweet on him instead of on her. So that's a that's a change right there. Referencing Gret being non-binary. Right. But of course, we also have, would you mind picking up some eggs? I was playing with my mom's knives. Can you work up a good cry? What have you got in your pockets? And then he knows the rules. Tell him no. All of these still exist within this text. Yep. It'll be interesting to see if we can find anything that is a seven word sentence that is new. Yeah. This is our plea to our audience. If you found seven words that are new, let us know. Share them in the Discord. Probably the easiest way to get a hold of us, yeah. So with that, why don't you share your seven words from life? All right. So I had a little bit of a difficult time coming up with seven words that we had said in the last week that were interesting. I mean, I'm sure that we've said seven word sentences back and forth. Nothing really stood out to me. Though there was a point at which we were talking about the cat 
and how it was your turn to be snuggled. And there was a discussion of how he is a delight in snuggle mode. But as cute as that is, and how sick I'm sure that everyone is of hearing us talk about our cat, even though he did provide some lovely loud commentary while we started recording this. <laughs> I think my seven words this time around are going to be things that you said right before we started recording when you left my room and said, I'll also put my belt goat away. <laughs> Please explain that. Well, I had a belt goat and so I needed to put it away. But in all seriousness, back a couple months ago, when I was getting ready to go out of town on a round the world trip for work, I had decided that I would get Phoenix a cute little squishable thing that they could snuggle with when they were on the plane coming to meet me. And then also just to kind of have and hug around the house while waiting for me to return. Because I do enjoy plushies. So I ordered a little squishable keychain goat thing and it was super cute. But due to some weirdo mix-up in their order system, I ended up getting two of them. So we were putting stuff away today, and Phoenix was like, oh, here, take your goat. And so I took it, and not really having a great place to put it, I clipped it onto my belt loop. So it became my belt goat. And yes, also I was like, well, I have to put this away now. So I had to put away my belt goat. All right, aren't jokes better when you explain them? I was just thinking that. All right, so that... I'd like to thank you for potting with me. Thank you for potting with me. And thank you for listening to Tales from the Waystone. Join us next time when we go over the middle third of The Narrow Road Between Desires. Buy the book. Or borrow the book. Somehow acquire the book. Support the author. Support the illustrator. Support the publisher. Support the audiobook reader. All of that stuff. Just, if you enjoy artistic expressions and are having fun with what we're doing... Support the people that made the thing that we're talking about. Indeed. We would like to thank our friend Shawnee Jang for our theme music, speaking of supporting artists. And many thanks to Patrick Rothfuss and Nate Taylor for helping create this world that we enjoy exploring. Audio production, editing, and social media coordination such as it is, courtesy of me, Phoenix McCullough. Writing and project management, courtesy of me, Will McCullough. If you would like to chat with us, our Discord link is somewhere. You can find it, I promise. Otherwise, if you'd like to help support us, want to help us pay for the book we bought, I don't know. <laughs> we do have a Patreon, patreon.com slash waystonepod. No obligations. It's sort of kept up at this point. But you do get early access, even if that early access is only a day, if you so desire. Anyway, with that, here's to one more day above the roses. To one more day above the roses. Ding! And Sokka will be happy that we're about to go feed him. All right. It says it has... Two pips of battery. We are going to believe that it has two pips of battery. Two whole pips. Two whole pips. Until it doesn't. <laughs>